0: Welcome to the second edition of the JMT Podcast, version 2.0 with Jeff LePoint and Greg Lasala. What's up, Greg?
1: Hey, Jeff. What's going on?
0: Nothing much, man. We just got back from a lovely Salt Lake City trip, Utah, the sunshine state. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, Utah.
1: Well, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have any time to enjoy it. That uh, board review course was kind of a monster.
0: Yeah, you did. Yeah, I noticed. I, I gave a couple pretty painful talks, and I noticed that there was some solid suicidal ideation in the
1: audience. <laughs> uh, I do have to say that, man. You did a great job, and that goes for all the other speakers for the board review course. I thought they all did a great job. You know, Thank you. It was really informative. To the people who write the test, I have something completely different to say.
0: Can, can we include that today, uh, or do I need to get the bleeper?
1: I think probably a bleeper. This is a children's show, right? We're not allowed to uh, curse too much. Well,
0: my children might be the only ones who listen to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I really, honestly, who writes these tests? It's unbelievable. Uh, I thought I was doing well, and then during the board review course, somebody told me I needed to know all the Latin names for the plants and stupid animals I'll never see in my life. It's kind of ridiculous, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely when I go to treat, I make sure I have all the kingdom phylum class information ready to go.
1: Well, I mean, you know, I do find it kind of crazy that, you know, when I get this guy who comes in from the farthest corner of China with some weird herbal that you're never going to see in your life, and I'm able to tell you what the hell that plant looks like, even though I'm not a botanist, I'm sure the nurse is going to tell me, well, doctor, what's the Latin name for that? Um, It's actually a hard
0: stop at the pharmacy. Yeah, Yeah, in in Epic in epic you have to you have to know the genus and species in, in Latin to be oh, able to Oh that's right get they, they the added that,
1: that to the EMR. so yes to uh, all you writers of the test uh, you know where you can go shove it
0: Well thank you I think that you should go easy on them they were obviously quite possibly very harshly bullied
1: uh, yeah you bring up a good point uh, this is what happens when your kids are bullied so,
0: And yeah this is how they get back
1: So parents take notice
0: if you ask me, when a house looks like that, it's time to find another one. That's a very good idea, Eeyore. We have a opioid-packed episode today. It's It might be an open-faced opioid sandwich, or we might. We're still mulling it over. We're going to put it right in the middle. But it's, it's going to take some mastication to get through the
1: opioids. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's a good representation of what's going on in our country today the opioid epidemic it's all over the place we all know it's a problem in this issue they definitely understand that because boy is it yeah. Yeah, opioid packed
0: opioid palooza palooza. yeah opioid
1: on top of opioids on top of opioids dare i say an <laughs> overdose of opioids oh i see what you did there you an like overdose that? of opioids yeah so Quick house cleaning though before we do uh, get into our opioid sandwich. Thank you for those who responded on Twitter's. We like some of the compliments. Uh, we of course love the complaints. Some of them very colorful.
0: How, how many uh, responses did you get?
1: Well uh, you know, hey, listen, listen, a few. It's better than none.
0: I I got a non-zero number less than five. <laughs> An Again, integer.
1: It's it's a process. It's a process. But uh, thank you. Keep them coming. Again, you know, whether that's critiques, whether it's whatever it is, just keep them coming because uh, we like to, you know, add in what our listeners uh, find interesting. So uh, keep those coming. And without further ado, uh, do you want to get into our opioid sandwich?
0: Okay, Greg. So as we try and tackle this ginormous opioid smorgasbord think that and this was your suggestion which i thought was really awesome is that we kind of make a common sense almost thematic travel through these things to kind of link them all together and maybe the best place to start is the trends in opioid prescribing
1: sounds good why don't we start with this so this study it's titled pilot study of the importance of factors affecting emergency department opioid analgesic prescribing decisions it's done by adam Justin Schrager and Brent Morgan. And essentially this was a study where the authors took a survey of attendings, residents, physicians assistants who work in their department and they asked them uh, essentially what was the factors that influenced their prescribing methods. And again, this was a self-reported survey. It covered three pediatric ERs and two adult ERs. The authors only got a 70% response rate, which is pretty good for a survey, but yeah, I think you can squeeze your own workers to maybe respond a little bit higher. Uh, But what they found was the five highest rated factors that influenced their prescribing decisions were opioid prescription history, history of substance abuse, diagnosis thought to be the cause of the patient's pain, makes sense, clinical gestalt, And providers concern of unsafe usage of the medication. Now, the five lowest factors were patient age, patient satisfaction, patient's reported pain score, right? Interesting. The prescribing culture of the clinical site, and concern for medication diversion. Now, Jeff, what do you uh, seem to think of these stats?
0: I think the biggest thing when I look at this is that it's self-reported. Right. So, like, if you ever ask me to, like, self-report on something, sometimes I might say I do, like, way, way better than I do. Um, I think that this is certainly a very important topic. And but we really, you know, this is a this is a huge problem for doctors in the community and doctors in in academic medicine, because we are, you know, we're judged on how satisfied people are with our treatment. Sometimes our remuneration is tied to that. I don't know is yours.
1: Uh, no, thankfully, my bonus has nothing to do with patient satisfaction.
0: Well, that's that's convenient. <laughs> mine is. Mine is. So, you know, I, it doesn't affect mine, and we try to have chronic pain patients excluded from those measurements. But it's definitely in the back of a lot of our heads because um, you get graded on these things, and we're used to getting good grades on stuff we get measured at. Um, you know, I think that, that actually – Kind of an interesting segue because there's another paper in JMT a while ago, I think it was Kavita Babu, who looked at patient satisfaction scores and opioid prescribing and found that there wasn't really a great relationship there.
1: No, and, you know, that was a real interesting article when it came out. But, I mean, look, it's just human nature. If patient satisfaction is tied into your bonus and that anytime you get a patient who sits there and they're complaining that they're in pain and they want pain meds and you're not going to give it to them, you know, just in the back of your head subconsciously, you're like, well, you know, this could affect what I make. And I think that's something that hospitals have to start taking a look at. You know, it it just doesn't make sense. We want to decrease the amount of opiates we provide to patients, yet we're going to tie their bonus into the satisfaction, which, you know, yes, there's one study that shows that has nothing to do with patient satisfaction. But, I mean, looking at it at the surface, it probably has a little to do with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the the problem is that, the problem is that it has the physician considering something that has nothing to do with medicine.
1: True, true. And then, I mean, the other problem is, you know, as physicians, we just don't like not knowing the answer. So a lot of times, you know, our patients come in, uh, you know, abdominal pain. They're 45 years old. They get labs all normal. They get a CAT scan because they're having such bad lower or left quadrant pain, and that's negative. And you just don't have a good answer. I think one recent study showed that about 25% of abdominal pains that enter the ER never get a definitive diagnosis. And, you know, as a physician, it just bothers you. You want to be able to tell the patient what's going on, or at least you want to be able to help them. And the one way we can help them is giving them pain medication. And, you know, nowhere is that reported here. And I think that's the problem I have with these self-reported survey studies. You know, all these things, it's great. Yeah, we take into effect their opioid-dependent history and what they come in with. But, you know, maybe we don't like to admit to ourselves that sometimes when we don't know what's going on and the only thing we can do to help a patient is give them opioid medication, maybe that's a route that we turn to more often than not.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't, that's not my practice. I don't, I don't like that. But at least you do, given you know what's going on, I and mean, we could add the diagnosis of opioid dependence. We got that going for us. But, When you have these things happen, one thing that I wanted to see more of or like you kind of feel the undertone of, it's tough to use the resident data, right? Like you don't know if when they're going through the culture of it, like if they're just doing what they're told or taking the path of least resistance.
1: Well, I mean, it makes sense. You remember being a resident. The one thing you didn't want to happen is you didn't want to get yelled at. You get yelled at by everyone. And, you know, it wasn't so much, we always used to joke, it's not what you know in residency, it's who you're working with, because it always is attending dependent and switches from attending to attending. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised that they found that the residents really prescribing pattern was based on the culture of where they work.
0: Right. I got yelled at more as a fellow, I think, than a resident. But I think one of the interesting undertones that maybe is not totally addressed is is sometimes giving pain medication is the path of least resistance to give people opioids as they leave. And, you know, while that might not be our practice, is that something that we need to recognize?
1: Agreed, agreed. And again, you know, this is just going to be the problem with all self-reported surveys. Again, you know, I think in general, we all like to think a whole lot that we're a whole lot better than we might actually be. And maybe in our weak moments, we're not as, you know, altruistic as some of these surveys might suggest
0: so do you what's your practice do you take the path of least resistance or the i I tend to like resistance again
1: you know i'm working in a busy community er and and i like to fight the good fight and that's probably just ingrained in me from toxicology fellowship
0: i tend to view conflict as something that i need to live So I I kind of find those interactions interesting. But I think that the big thing, at least in in my practice that I do now, is tell them that we have to balance their need for pain control. One, there's no such thing as no pain. Two, we have to balance their need for pain control with something that could totally kill them and
1: kills lots of people every year. Uh, Agreed, agreed. I mean, it's a good talk to have, you know, having these discussions with patients, probably is better for the patients and it's better for our society you know another interesting part that they don't really discuss here is I find actually the prescribing pattern against those of my colleagues that are a little bit more elderly compared to those that are just out of residency is completely different and they don't seem to mention that here don't know about you Jeff but I found those that are a little bit older a little bit more removed from residency are more shall we say liberal with their opioids that they use than those that are just out of residency. And I think that has more to do with, you know, the culture. First it was, hey, treat the pain. Now it's, you know, be careful. There's this huge opioid epidemic. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah,
0: I mean, I I think that, yeah, also depends on how old, you know, if you're getting tincture of laudanum. They're probably a little bit older than, than most of us. But I think that the prescribing patterns, and I would like to know a little bit more about this, I think they're a little bit of a time capsule of when our training ended. If your training ended in the 1990s, you're right in the middle of like pain as a vital sign. And the big push for all these things that maybe, you know, it's interesting to talk about how those things came up and how we got here, but you could be a product a little bit of that. So in other words, if you're finishing training now, or if you're in the middle of training now, you are smack dab in the middle of the worst prescription drug epidemic in our nation's history. And so you're going to be much more mindful of that.
1: Good article, some interesting points, Uh, more I think of a discussion point than anything that I'm going to apply but yeah, it does give us a lot of food for fodder here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Stuff so to look at in your own shop too. I'm you know, another tag on to that is is maybe take a look at your prescribing patterns after they changed the controlled substance class of hydrocodone. Right? So that, that would be really interesting. All of a sudden, you know, everyone's just, you know, given T threes or given tramadol or something crappy like that. But anyways. Okay, for the next one, I think it makes sense to maybe proceed over to the uh The Evolution of Recommended Naloxone Dosing for Opioid Overdose by Medical Specialty. It's by Nick Connors and Lewis Nelson. So I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, They went through, and basically what they looked at was 25 resources with recommended naloxone dosing. And looked at how they differed. And it, it was actually really kind of cool because, the, you know, since naloxone's introduction in 1967, you go through and there's quite a variation in reported recommended dosing with the initial dose that was recommended being 0.8 milligrams to two milligrams based on animal models. With the changes and the bad things that can happen with precipitated withdrawal, it's certainly very interesting to see what is the range of recommended dosing and what's the evidence for each one. So with the 25 resources that they looked at, and it's kind of a really cool table there, the recommended IV naloxone dose. 48% recommended 0.05 milligram dose or lower as a starting dose. 16% recommended 0.1 and 36% recommended 0.4 to 0.5 milligrams. There's one pain management book that recommended the lowest starting dose of 0.02 milligrams. um, And there was an association with lower recommended dosing and the year of publication.
1: What do you think? I think that part of it is interesting because as we're using more naloxone, we're realizing there are more adverse effects. And because of that, it seems like lower doses, we're using them more often and more specialties are being cognizant of the fact that you can get adverse effects such as pulmonary edema and severe agitation with higher doses of naloxone so i think that makes sense the later the publication the lower the dose basically what comes out of this is exactly what the authors say they call for a patient-centered clinical trial to determine the optimum dose and you know evaluate safety of naloxone i don't see how you can argue with that i'm surprised there hasn't been a study done yet But that's really what we need because there shouldn't be this much variation from specialty to specialty.
0: At least to me, when I look at this, I can always give more. I can just never take some away. (laughs) So what's your starting dose? Someone comes into your ED right now and they, they look like they're knocked out and they're hypoventilating. What, what is your dose?
1: I generally start at 0.05 milligrams and I work my way up from there.
0: Okay. That's very, I I give these little 0.01 doses, right? So like, you know, and and they got like a TB syringe on the, and the nurses are like going nuts. But I can just keep giving that every couple minutes as, you know, if we've bagged them up, if they're hypoventilating. And, and I can make it sure they don't wake up, but but start actually ventilating. So, you know, even between us, big difference of what we do, right? So, I, you know, I just think that's the real interesting part there.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that's what they point out in this article. And, uh, you know, it would be nice, though, if we can, you know, universally say, hey, this is the dose we should start at. Uh, I think at least more and more people are coming around though to start, you know, under that regular 0.5 milligrams. And thankfully I'm not seeing anybody given one milligram or two milligram to start off with anymore. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably the most important thing, take home for for our readers and for us, is that this is an interesting historical look and something to be mindful of because naloxone is not naloxone is not naloxone. Depending on the provider, their level of training, maybe where they trained and their experience, there's going to be a big variation.
1: And this actually is a nice segue into our next article that we're going to be talking about, when exactly to give naloxone. So the next article we're going to talk about is uh, Validation of Criteria to Guide Pre-Hospital Naloxone Administration for Drug-Related Altered Mental Status. And this article is written by Matt Friedman and Alex Manini. Uh, Manini. And, you know, they quickly go through an introduction where naloxone, as we said, was introduced in 1967. Prior EMS criteria that's used for administering naloxone is uh, respirations of 12 or less, meiotic pupils, and circumstantial evidence of opioid abuse. And what the authors tried to do was they took this criteria and tried to prospectively use it to determine if naloxone was appropriately administered and what was the response rate in general, basically what was the sensitivity to naloxone dosing. And they basically took all ED visits that had drug-related altered mental status or what they abbreviate to DRAMS. DRAMS. And so the result, they had 43 patients meeting this criteria, but interestingly, only 44% received naloxone. Four of the patients were intubated instead of giving naloxone because the patients were apneic, also interesting. Of the 24 patients, though, who did receive naloxone, using all the three criteria together, they found that was 83% sensitive, However, when they compared each criteria separately, they found meiosis to have the highest sensitivity with 91% and a negative predictive value of 89%. Uh, Jeff, you want to start on this one?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. Dr. Manini is, a, you know, really good friend of mine. So we were we were talking about this uh, when I saw him in Boston. I just, he, you know, for me, as soon as I get to drug-related altered mental status, like, uh, that's where I'm kind of like, oh. Like I, I don't, I don't give naloxone for ultimate status for the most part, I don't use it. So that's just such a, it's such a tough thing to do to, you know, it's very easy to rationalize and wrap your head around bystander use of naloxone, right? So it's, it's easy for me to wrap my head around use of it in the ED and bystander, you know, I, I think anyone who knows someone with heroin should have naloxone. I think that there should be naloxone next to every defibrillator. Every police officer should have naloxone. But when you get into higher level providers EMS wise, it's a little bit it's a little bit more difficult, right? Cuz you're using it it's not like, "Oh my god, they're dying, slam this into them." It's, "Okay, like what level of dying are you? Are you just asleep with small pupils? Well, then I don't think you should get naloxone at all. Period." So, you should get to the hospital. And, you know, even for those people who are hyperventilate, hypoventilating, like how much to give is kind of a thing. And and this doesn't really address that for me. And so, you know, I don't know if you saw like on social media, there's a thing on academic life and emergency medicine that was basically talking about the safety of giving people naloxone in the pre-hospital setting, having them wake up and release them. And it was just, like, insane, and there were very few medical toxicologists who, like, weighed in on it. So those are the kind of things I think about when I see this. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how many of these patients even needed naloxone.
1: Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point, and I bring up, you know, what we talked about earlier, and that, you know, you used a little bit more colorful language, but you said, you know, if patients talk to me and they have meiotic pupils, I don't care. And, you know, that's a good point. Just throw away all the criteria and keep one. Are their respirations depressed are they hypoventilating if they aren't get naloxone it seems very simple you know and and i say that but also i'm always careful judging ems and you know providers that are practicing outside the hospital because after doing some ems rotations you see what they go through i mean they go into these uncomfortable situations where they have no idea what's going on You know and sometimes they have to sit there and they have to intubate a patient on the ground on their stomach so i really do appreciate what they go through i mean it's not as simple as being in the hospital but it should be simplified to them that hey you have respiratory depressions you give naloxone if you're altered i don't care if you're meiotic i don't care are your respirations depressed and maybe by simplifying it, you'd get more people giving naloxone when it's more appropriate, and you might actually get better responses.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, I, I started in pre-hospital medicine, and that's exactly the reason that I wouldn't want them giving any naloxone to someone who, just for altered mental status. Like, as someone who has taken several kicks to the solar plexus in the back of a rig, um, I would want to prevent that from happening.
1: You were a whacker?
0: Yeah, man. I had a utility belt. It's like freaking Batman. A maglite. <laughs> A beeper, <laughs> batarangs.
1: Uh, do you have anything more to say about this article?
0: We need to have a hand in these protocols for EMS providers. We need to make sure that we include them in our discussions. We need to make sure that they don't feel like we we're just kind of neutering their practice, but at the same time, we need to have kind of thoughtful, mindful practices um, that that make sense and take the best care of the provider and the best care of the patient. Okay, and, and so the last layer on our opiopalooza, it's probably a good time to talk about the um, pretty pretty interesting uh, wearable biosensor paper. So the title is Wearable Biosensors to Detect Physiologic Change During Opioid Use by Drs. Carrero, Whitbold, Indic, Fang, Zhang, and Boyer. And so what they did is they took these portable biosensors, it's called a Q-sensor, that measures biometric data, it's about the size of a watch, and they were looking to slap it on patients in the ED and see if there were patterns of biometric changes before and after opioid administration in heavy and low or naive users. And so these these biosensors, they've been studied previously. They've been applied to compliance monitoring for drug adherence um, as well as suicide risk. And so again, the aim of the study was to establish a pattern of expected responses with opioid use in the ED environments to get a baseline reading so as far as methods, what they did is they used this Q-sensor to obtain all this biometric data. And they had 30 subjects enrolled, presented to the ED, that had a primary pain complaint. Age range is between 18 and 90 years. And they were all willing to wear this contraption uh, during and after the administration of IV opioid. So one of the things that was cool that they measured, they measured this things called uh, EDA. It's a, it's a measure of electrical conductance of the skin which can vary with sweat. I think it's kind of like a polygraph in some ways. Well, this is all mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. So the EDA can be an indirect marker of sympathetic activity. Also, skin temperature was also recorded. So the results, there was no difference in the EDA measurements, but the skin temperature did was higher post-administration and there was difference between heavy users and non-heavy users. There was a greater decrease in small movements in the heavy user group. Otherwise, EDA and temperature were the same between the two. That's
1: right. They also checked, you know, the locomotion between two groups, and they found the uh, locomotion decreased after opiate use.
0: My my locomotion would probably be decreased if you gave me a bunch of opioids, too. So, what do you think? Where does this this fit in?
1: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting study, kind of forward thinking, Um, and it's certainly doable i mean right now everybody has a fitbit on and i see this as basically maybe just a upgrade on top of the fitbit uh, you know these uh, fitbits are kind of becoming cheaper and cheaper so i don't see why we can't start using this in our opiate treatment programs or, in that fact, any substance abuse treatment programs. So, uh, I think we'll be seeing more of these in the future. And if we can get a good baseline for each patient for the different drugs they might abuse or take and how bodies react, uh, I think this is going to be something we're going to be seeing a lot of and that could be a very useful tool. I
0: agree, we're definitely going to see a ton more of these in the future. The thing for me, I mean, your Fitbit is pretty, you know, kindergarten level of like data that it records. How far did you go? Uh, a fancy one be how fast did you go? Or how high was your heart rate? But I mean, those are pretty accepted and known data points to use. So I just don't know, you know, this is, this seems like you know, much more complicated. So a lot, of, a lot of work like this, I think is important to establish baselines and establish patterns for how to interpret that data Later on i think you know obviously the technology to record the data is there now but what to make of it and how to apply it that's going to be the interesting thing going forward
1: agree agree very cool study but i think just you know the first and many to come nice all right and to end our opioid thanksgiving wait we're done no no we got one more here <sighs> and this will be kind of like the dessert for all you academics out there Uh, This one's titled, Internet Training Resulted in Improved Trainee Performance in a Simulated Opioid Poison Patient as Measured by a Checklist. This one's written by Hong Kim, Harry Heverling, Michael Cordero, Vanessa Vasquez, and Andrew Stahlbeck. And essentially the intro here talks about, you know, uh, medical training for students and residents and how internet training has been used and sometimes shown to be beneficial for knowledge. But very difficult to show that it improves clinical skills and this kind of seems to be the crux of the problem for all simulation out there improves knowledge but very difficult to show in a research paper if there's an improvement in clinical skills so I'm going to spend a little time on the methods because I really think that's what's important in this paper here and what they did was they got two consecutive classes of emergency medicine PGY1s were enrolled in the study one residency class was given the training prior to an opiate simulation. The other class uh, per- participated in the simulation after doing a reading assignment. And they then graded each class based on a simple checklist, a time-weighted version of the checklist, which only gave points to the resident if they completed a list of critical actions under three minutes, and then a global scoring tool. And the results, dun da da Where a uh, simple checklist, they found that the internet training group performed better. For the time-weighted scoring, the internet training group performed better. And however, for the global assessment, they found no statistical difference. Uh, What are your thoughts, Jeff?
0: No, I mean, it's always cool to have these training modules and how to how to evaluate how effective they are is always kind of the crux of it. I think that they're obviously very good to have, and and uh, Dr. Stolbeck's kind of one of the people who's kind of known for making these uh, things, you know, all these modules that people can learn off, which are really great, but the nuts and bolts of how to evaluate it are really the hard part. And then how, I think you said it best in your intro, how this translates into performance clinically. Oh, one thing I would say is that um, One thing I would say, methods-wise, it's sometimes it's nice to take the two groups and cross them over to the other learning method to see how that affects things. So I wish that was kind of done.
1: True, but then you'd get kind of a confounding effect because they would have already done one of the simulations, maybe learned how a simulation works a little bit better, so you're going to see improvement across the board. So, you know, that's the problem with these studies. You always deal with a little bit of confounding.
0: Yeah, right. Like the, I think that it's pretty clear that not everyone learns from the same material. So I have for my residents, some of them learn best. Like, so I'll make podcasts for some of them. They like that. Sometimes we'll make these Apple ebooks for them, but I got a couple people who will just email and be like, Hey, I know you just put like 12 hours into that module or whatever. I just kind of read through Gold Franks or I read through the articles. So, you know, I think that the key to you know, this is an educational tool is, one, it's great because it's always available. So the classroom can kind of be everywhere. It's probably really good for flipped classroom applications. And it's good to provide the residents with, you know, whatever means that they can utilize. I tell them, I don't care where, you know, which one of these things that you use, but just be prepared to come heavy and have a good discussion. Be prepared to have a good discussion during during lecture. But I like this kind of stuff. I think it's great. It's just, it's really hard to evaluate.
1: All right, Jeff. So, what do you think? Let's talk a little bit about caffeine, huh?
0: Anything but opioids.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, regarding caffeine, what I mean by that, we're going to be talking about that anhydrous powdered form of caffeine. That some brilliant person thought was a good idea to come out. This study was a. Uh, it's a retrospective study of clinical effects of powdered caffeine exposures reported to three U.S. Poison Control Centers. And uh, this was written by Jillian Beauchamp, Amberly Johnson, Barbara Crouch, Matthew Valento, Zane Horowitz, and Robert Hendrickson. Uh, and the authors, you know, start off talking about you know caffeine and how caffeinated beverages have been known to cause severe toxicity, and then how uh, this anhydrous caffeine has come out in a powdered form. Uh, they, you know, quickly go over the fatal overdose of caffeine's 150 milligrams per kilogram. And that since this product is a dietary supplement, it is not regulated by the FDA. Oof. Yeah, right. Problems right away. Yeah. Um, So this is a retrospective chart review over 30 months from five poison control centers. They had 40 reported cases. 70% are male, of course, because men do stupid things. And they said 28 remained home. 12, though, were sent to the hospital. And the big surprise is they were all found to be tachycardic, right? Uh, other dysrhythmias: AFib, PVCs, by gemini Only three of the patients, though, were sick enough to go to the ICU. Uh, one was a 70-year-old male. They said took one spoonful, and he was tachycardic, diaphoretic, and hypokalemic. The two others were in a suicide attempt. A 27-year-old female who took nine, nine grams, developed some hypotension. And a 48-year-old who took 100 grams and he developed some hypotension, some AFib, metabolic acidosis. Both of these were treated with esmolol benzos and, you know, IV fluids. And really their discussion was they talked about how the powdered caffeine dosing, one cup equivalent of coffee is 128 to 132 of a teaspoon. Yeah, I mean, we're just setting us up for failure here, aren't we?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I like this. I like this a lot. Because for for many reasons, one kind of newish preparation of a very old drug, methylxanthine toxicity is not something we see a ton of anymore. With no one's really on theophylline, I I barely see anyone on theophylline anymore. So that's kind of something an interesting toxicity, and and, you know, caffeine's certainly not theophylline, but it's close close enough in some of these cases here. And so I, I like that it's a new. Preparation that we have to talk about and think about—that's a lot easier to get a real load into you with without really appreciating what's going to happen. So that's kind of that's kind of interesting, and then it's it's fun to talk about how to how to manage these. You know, the the few that I've seen that have been hypotensive uh, because they can't fill because they're going so fast. You know, everyone kind of trips out when you start ordering a beta blocker. So it's 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 kind of fun to to think about that and to review it. And I think uh, you know, and it gives us. Lastly, it gives us another chance to extol the evils of DeShay, you know, and you know, there's a board, you know, that, that appears on boards every once in a while, right? But, you know, if the FDA is not going to control these things and we're all going to be afraid that they're going to take our vitamins away, so we make these things available as dietary supplements without any kind of regulatory oversight, then, uh, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that people are going to get in trouble with them. We should be ready to educate and, and advocate against that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for all you soon to be bored people, I uh, realized the shea was passed in 1994. If that question does come up. Um, and I think the bottom line of this, and this is what the authors really state is that, you know, these products need better labeling, better dosing instructions. Cause how the hell do you get one 28th of a teaspoon? Um, you know, and the truth is <laughs> right. if there isn't better oversight of this. People are going to die. I mean,
0: and, right. Right. Yeah. Take 12 grains, measure them out
1: <laughs> along with four drams. <laughs> pour a little out for good luck, you know, right. a little over your right shoulder for superstition. You right. got the right amount.
0: Right, right. And commence vomiting. Yeah, good. Yeah, I thought this was really fun. All right, let's 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 move along to uh, something that's pretty neat here. We're going to look at the outcomes in cardiac arrest patients due to toxic exposure treated with therapeutic hypothermia. The authors are Dr. Modisette, Dr. Walsh, Dr. Hefner, Dr. Pearson, and Dr. Kearns. So this is a really interesting study. Um, and while there is a lot of data regarding therapeutic hypothermic use in cardiac arrest patients, it was included in the 2002 ACLS guidelines and has later been extended with revisions of those guidelines. It's recommended witnessed uh, hypothermia for patients w- with witnessed arrest due to VFIB that got return of spontaneous circulation and that they should be cooled to 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for 12 24 hours. However, there's not a lot of information on therapeutic hypothermia with cardiac arrest due to toxicologic causes. So interesting question. And the study looked at a database, retrospective review of a database with a registry that had drugs that two reviewers agreed that were due to toxicologic causes, and these patients got therapeutic hypothermia. And they went on to see how these patients did, which was where the numbers get pretty interesting because their discharge from the hospital with good neurologic outcomes was, gosh, it was pretty high, right, Greg?
1: Yeah, I think they put a number here of 35% with a survival rate of 42%.
0: That's pretty good. That's amazingly good.
1: That's awesome. And that's where you kind of got to delve into the numbers a little bit more, because how these guys getting a survival rate of 42% when most of us are getting anywhere, say maybe 12, 15% um, on a good day? Uh, And what it was, was that you have to look at it. They basically took out any patient who had a cardiac arrest, did not get return of spontaneous circulation, and started in the protocol. So all those people died in the ED, they were out. Uh, This was only people that you had a return of spontaneous circulation, were admitted, and started on the hypothermic protocol. And of those people, that smaller subset of people, they had a 42% survival rate with 35% having good neurological outcome, which is still great numbers. But that's why you'll see such a discrepancy between the numbers in this study and other kind of uh, studies where they show survival rates with therapeutic hypothermia.
0: Right. And they also took out all the patients who may have had a terminal illness, which other studies seem to include, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, of course, another factor right there.
0: So what did you think about the drugs involved? I mean, I wasn't particularly surprised by the highest proportion being in patients uh, with cocaine toxicity.
1: Yeah. Got to love that cocaine, right? But uh,
0: yeah, <laughs> so that's a different that's a different podcast.
1: Oh, so I'm sorry. And then the other thing is that, I mean benzos and opiates. Uh, so I guess they're thinking the idea was that patients became hypoxic and then that's why they went into a cardiac arrest.
0: Yeah. I mean, for, for me this brings up an interesting question because if you have a direct cardiac toxin and you do therapeutic hypothermia you're you know there's some baggage associated with that treatment i mean you're certainly more common to have arrhythmias you can have that cold diuresis which can leave you you know hypokalemic and hypomagnesemic that you really have to watch out for so i would you know i'd be really mindful of those things in a patient with a direct cardiac toxin.
1: Yeah, you know, at the same time, though, what I found interesting was that they found no difference between uh, those patients who had a cardiac arrest not due to toxins and those that had a cardiac arrest due to toxins. And I actually think, you know, in general, these kind of drug toxicities, you're dealing with better protoplasm. So I would think in general, these patients, you know, as long as you can get them over the insult, Cool them, you generally had better outcomes, but it wasn't the case in this study.
0: Right. One other thing that I would like to know is where the patients had ROSC, right? So if you, if all these patients included had a return of circulation in the pre hospital setting, we do know that they're going to do better anyways. So do we, are we looking at a group of patients who were set up to do well, you know, from the outset? Or, you know, did they get ROSC later, which is definitely a poor prognostic indicator. So I don't know that. So it, those that kind of information helps me make a little bit more of the data. Um, but, you know, it's certainly very interesting.
1: It is. I mean, you know, then throwing in, you know, another monkey wrench. Right now the discussion's about, you know, how much do you have to even cool these people? Uh, they're having studies now come out where if you just keep people between 36 and 38 degrees, so you just make them from becoming febrile. They seem to have better outcomes than really, you know, keeping them down 32 to 34 degrees. So I think that's kind of all debatable and still all out there.
0: One thing, one thing I do want to mention is that kudos to them for not just, you know, taking a urine screen. How many of these studies do we see, even with like poison center data, where you really don't know if the patient was sick from it, much less exposed? Um, and, you know, instead of just saying, oh, look, they were reported to have drugs in the, in the HPI or to have some urine screen, we actually reviewed each case and try to obtain some kind of inter-rater reliability. And in the the cases where they couldn't get a good Kappa, when it was less than 90, they actually brought in the third reviewer. So, you know, I think that's a great, a great example of kind of doing the most with what you got there.
1: True, true. You know, good observational study. You know, how, how much is this going to change the practice? Probably not a lot right now. Uh, but it's a good question to pose and maybe uh you know, study in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Very neat. Or very cool. Ooh. Yeah. Right.
1: Couldn't help myself. All right. So next, let's uh, do a little case files. Case files. Yeah. And this uh, issue's case files come out of uh, UCSF. And it's uh, Seizures and Persistent Anion Gap Metabolic Acidosis by Anna Renz and Craig Smolin. So this is a 17-year-old presented to the ED with generalized seizure, treated with midazolam, GCS3, so intubated. And they get into basically my favorite part of this, which is they go over the differential for drug-induced seizures. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you. I thought they really broke this down in a good way. Oh, that was great. Yeah. So simplified, it was just that seizure can occur as a result of a loss of the neuroinhibitory pathways. So GABA antagonism, right? Such as what, if?
0: Hydrazine, baby.
1: Absolutely, right. Or INH, right? Oh, INH. Or enhancement of excitatory pathways, such as in...
0: You're pimping. this, the serotonin syndrome. Hey, hey, I'm not hey, taking hey, the boards, dude. The, I, I the already funny done. thing
1: is I'm the one taking the I know, boards. man. I I lock, you better lock it up. Yeah, that's right. Lock it up. You lock it up. So, and then also seizures can occur from withdrawal of with substances, uh, such as in the loss of chronic inhibition of gamma and upregulation of NMDA receptors, as you would see in ethanol withdrawal. So, and then their final one is that toxins causing cellular hypoxia, such as cyanide. So, I think that's real nice. You know, four simple ways to uh, figure out drug induced seizures. What do you think?
0: There's a million different ways that you can get a generalized convulsion or a seizure. And, but I, I like this stepwise approach. All right, board, board pearl, only drug induced seizure that responds to phenotone
1: for aminopyridine. Boom for the win. Yahtzee. Right? That's,
0: that's a. That's, that's love that the board is all just final jeopardy questions. So, yeah, I thought this was great. I mean, look, glossed over hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, you know, hypoxia, all those different things. But I thought that this was a really great discussion on how you, how you go through everything in, and as you, you think about different causes and treatments, um, just a really well-done discussion and differential diagnosis.
1: So the case continues. The patient had a pH of 6.96 and a lactate of 9. Um, and they thought, you know, these are completely consistent with the seizure. But then the patient was resuscitated. Lactate had dropped to 2. However, the patient had a persistent anion gap of 17. And this is where they discuss going into your mud piles, which I know, Jeff, you have something to say about the subject. Well,
0: I'm like, nothing super profound. It's just, you you know, this is what we teach. This is what we teach um, residents and medical students. And when you rely on just that, you're certainly going to miss some things. So it's funny, when we were prepping for this, you and I were talking, and then you dig mud piles. And I tell you that, uh, you know, I, I can never... Remember all of them, and the differential really looks like the alphabet um, for the toxicologist. So, so I tend to use you know something different. I just want to make sure if there's ketones, uremia, lactate, or start to think about uh, organic toxins or other acids. But anyways, um, proceed.
1: Yeah. No. And you know, I think either way, as long as you have a good list that you can kind of go back to of what causes it. And you're right. The way we learn mud piles as ER residents is. with lack of a better word, grossly incomplete in the toxicology world. So many different drugs can cause uh, an acidosis. And so it is good to figure out which ones can lead to uremia, lactate. And you break it down a little easier. So I do agree with you there. So that's what they did with this patient. And what they came upon was that, you know, patient with a seizure, elevated anion uh, acidosis. One of the things they did fall on were NSAIDs. And so that brings up the question of which NSAID can lead to seizures. Now, the most common cause worldwide of an NSAID causing seizures is another board question. Um, Methanemic acid, I believe Boom. I'm saying that correctly. However, we don't find that in the U.S., right? That's no longer sold. So what they fell on was likely ibuprofen. And sure enough, they sent ibuprofen levels. And the level was 641. Normal therapeutic or high normal therapeutic is 47. So that was obviously the culprit. Patient was extubated after day two, admitted to taking ibuprofen in a suicide attempt and did well. Yeah,
0: very cool. So, yeah, really cool. Just cool review, cool discussion. Uh, Great things to think about.
1: Yeah, I mean, most of the time, right, you hear an ibuprofen overdose, you kind of poo-poo it because you have to take massive amounts to cause problems. right. Uh, I mean, you're talking about between two hundred to four hundred milligrams per kilogram before you're actually getting toxic effects. Uh, so this is, you know, a good reminder though that you know taking it in right quantities, this could be a deadly drug.
0: Yeah, and the determination to take that much—that's like a Costco bottle. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> For- for sure, for sure.
1: <laughs> well, I have to, I'll have to let the patient know. I'm sure she'd appreciate it.
0: Yeah, let's see other board. Do you have any board, other board stuff for that? For for all people, first time takers and oh research? yeah.
1: So NSAID that causes agranulocytosis is phenylbutazone. Phenylbutazone. Wow, that's a good one. And there you go. Here's the final um, pearl for this uh, section.
0: Well, um, so ibuprofen displaces bilirubin from albumin, so you can get high bilirubin concentrations. That's come up. Um, A couple times clinically in my practice, so it's kind of interesting. Good note, good thing to remember. Good to know. All right, that was a good one. All right, Dunzo. Dunzo. Let's move on to some of the case reports, and uh, I mean I'm excited to do this because you know if you um, Dr. Mysick, uh, one of the editors, wrote a great editorial in this edition, so I encourage you to check it out, and the title is "When n is greater than one," and it's. Talking about and discussing the power of uh, databases and like toxic to look at different things. But I, I do, um, and, and he certainly doesn't poo poo the, um, the case report, but I want to take a second and just say that, like, let's, let us not forget the humble case report. It is a really important part of our specialty. And, you know, if you think that we can get really great data, um, like this that is, is stimulating on, you know, huge data sets, um, sometimes that's going to be hard to do. So so case reports, I hope, for a long time will be a big part of this journal and a big part of our practice because uh, there's something really important about these these really cool and fun cases that might give birth to bigger studies and bigger ideas as we go forward. So the first one I want to talk about, I think um, we're both pretty excited to discuss, and the title is Two Cases of Refractory Cardiogenic Shock Secondary to Prepropion Successfully Treated with Veno-Arterial Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation by William Heiss, Aaron Skolnick, Robert Ratchkin, Hugh Owen-Reese, and Kimberly Graham. And, and what this is, is a two-patient case series or case report of two patients who were successfully treated with very severe refractory bupropion toxicity with VA ECMO. And so basically we'll review, you know, talking about bupropion, It's a substituted cathinone inhibits the uptake of dopamine and nor Many, many cases reported in 2015 to poison centers with four deaths does cause generalized convulsions and cardiac conduction delays through a mechanism that is uh, distinct from like type one anti dysrhythmics. So the authors report two cases of bupropion overdose with seizures and refractory shock treated with VA ECMO. What do you think, Greg? It's probably a good time to to talk about ECMO real quick, huh?
1: Yeah? yeah, absolutely. Let, let's talk a little bit of a different forms. So the VA ECMO, as you said, the veno-arterial ECMO. Um, I figure you guys are all probably pretty smart enough to figure that one out. But uh, this type of ECMO allows gas exchange and hemodynamic support. That's the big thing. So hemodynamic support while blood is pumped from the venous to the arterial side. And that's why, you know, it was used here. They needed the hemodynamic support. You then have the VV ECMO, which really facilitates gas exchange and blood's removed from the venous side and then pumped back into it. But it doesn't provide any hemodynamic support. So that type of ECMO is perfect for people with severe ARDS.
0: Right. And so, you know, like ECMO had fallen out of favor for some time until cases of really sick patients with flu and VV ECMO kind of came to the rescue. And the complication rate now is decreasing. You know, ECMO is getting easier to do in centers that do it often. So this is probably something that we are going to see much more of going forward. So back to the cases. Case one, 15-year-old girl took a just ton of bupropion, 90-150 pills got to the ED in PEA after generalized seizure. They got her back with ROSC, and um, she was given some phenobarb for seizure treatments. And then she had a couple more episodes of uh, pulseless electrical activity. Then they, again, get a pulse back and everything, And but due to poor cardiac output uh, while on multiple pressors, with worsening hypoxia, she was started on VA ECMO. Herbiproprion concentration was 1800 nanograms per mL. Normal in the 50 to 100 nanograms to mL range. Also has active metabolite, but I don't know if those um, concentrations were given as well. But so it might even be, you know, even more effect than we see there on these numbers. She's on VA ECMO for four days and discharged on day 24, but essentially back to baseline. So I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. So you know, to sum it up, this person was dead and they left the hospital at. Baseline. So that's that's amazing. Case two 16 year old girl took 60 pills of 150 milligram bupropion. She received lorazepam, propofol, and finally some phenobarbital, which stopped her status epilepticus. Cardiogenic shock developed, and she was seen to have biventricular cardiomyopathy on echocardiogram. She was given lipids. So this patient was given lipids, but the other wasn't. No effect, and then was placed on VA ECMO for three days. So she also. Basically, returned to baseline. Although, did she did have some distal extremity complications? She developed acute compartment syndrome in the right leg, distal to the arterial cannulation. She did get fasciotomies and was discharged to rehab like sixteen days later. So, I mean, what, what do you think? I mean, this is, I mean, this is
1: really cool stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, these, these case reports they can bring up really cool things. Very interesting to read. And in this case, you know, first I have to start off: bupropion overdose. We all know awful. Right, just some of the worst cases I've ever seen. Bupropion overdose, not easy to treat. There is no specific algorithm, and it seems like the authors here did absolutely everything for this patient prior to doing ECMO. Yeah, one of them didn't get lipids, the other one did though, and it seemed like they made the right decision putting them on VA ECMO at the time because that's always a little bit delicate. You know, are you going too early? Are these patients going to do well without the ECMO? But so in this case, I think, yeah, both of them very appropriate. They did well. And two, you know, just kudos to the authors because look at it, you know, too many times we get told things we've done wrong, but we haven't done right. I mean, these were two people that were essentially dead or going to die. And through the work of these authors and other people involved with the care, they saved these two lives. So, you know, kudos to you guys. Give yourselves, you know, a good round of applause because, uh, I think that's something that we don't take, uh, you know, into account too often.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, and, and, you know, so going forward, so at your shop, do you have ECMO?
1: We do have ECMO. Uh, I've never seen it started in the ER. But, you know, I think our patient population, these tox patients are perfect for ECMO. Again, you're not dealing with poor protoplasm; You're just trying to get them through the initial insult And if they can ride out that wave, their heart's probably in good shape, their lungs are in good shape, and they're probably going to just do fine. So I think going forward, I wouldn't be surprised if, say, like 5, 10 years, we're going to be seeing the use of ECMO more and more in the ED. And it might eventually be ER physicians that are actually putting, you know, in the cannulas here.
0: Right, right. I mean, here in San Diego, we're home to, like, the ED ECMO, like Mecca. Um, And so when we talk to those guys um, over at Sharp, like Zach Steiner and um, Dr. Blezzo. You know, it's interesting when you think about how to how to try to get something like this off the ground. We don't have it. Um, but really, you know, like the first step is does your does your hospital perform ECMO in the middle of bypass or something? And if you do, that means you have it. And so once you have it, you can kind of start to to play with how do you bring it downstairs? Um, but I think that it's really important that medical toxicologists are on the ground floor of these things because we're going to be involved with how to take when to take them off. You know what are the indications to put them on, and that, that was one of the things that I found really interesting. Is when do you decide to pull the trigger? And so that that's something that really will need to be worked out going forward. In these cases, it looks like there was really thoughtful consideration into their EF on uh, on the echo. So I thought that that was you know really pretty cool. The other thing that I thought was interesting that I don't know they talked about was the one that got lipids. You know, and so I'm not so much interested in the. Uh, how effective the lipids were to treat the toxicity, but it, does it change anything mechanically with the ECMO? Do you need to change anything out? Is it going to gum up some of your pumps or something um, that you'd need to change out more often? So that would there be any considerations that we would have to help on when these people are on ECMO after they get lipids?
1: Well, you know, I've actually had this conversation with a few cardiothoracic surgeons who were doing ECMO, got two different answers from two different people. Oh,
0: and they weren't toxicologists?
1: No, imagine, right? (laughs) Nobody can come to a consensus. But really, one, you know, one of them did say that there was really no problem with it, that they've had, you know, they've given ILE to patients before that have been on ECMO. There's been uh, no problem in terms of gumming up the machinery. But there are some complications that occur with this that you have to be aware of, you know, such as hemolysis. Obviously, you can get hemorrhaging from the site, machine failure. And then what we saw with the second patient that had limb ischemia and, uh, you know, following compartment syndrome after cannulation.
0: Right. And the first patient had pulmonary hemorrhages while on VA at home, right? So, I mean, those are things, you know, look, they're alive and they left the hospital better, certainly better than they got there. And that's, that's great. But I think that as, you know, everyone gets better at doing these things, it's going to be more widely available. So even if we don't have it at our respective centers, it's going to serve us well to know about it and and to keep following this stuff as things progress.
1: Yeah. And I think, Jeff, you're right. You know, as toxicologists, we have to be at the forefront of this and advocating for our patients. Uh, I think too many times we let other specialties take the lead. And ECMO is something where it's going to be a really important tool for us. Because, again, our patients are actually the perfect patients for it. You know, good protoplasm, good heart, good lungs. Get them over the next two to three days and they're going to do fine. You know, that's much better than your 80-year-old patient with the bad heart that you put on it. So, I mean, I think we got to be more involved. Try to get more in with your hospital. The people that are running ECMO, talk to them. And because you're going to be advocating for your patients to get ECMO. Where I think it's most appropriate,
0: right? Especially in these, you know, direct cardiovascular toxins, right? That's that's the money here. So great, really cool. That's why see case
1: reports important. So next one we're gonna talk about is a uh, case report, and it's titled "A Wrinkle Wrinkle." Wrinkle.
0: I mean, how are we gonna get past this?
1: It's how are we gonna get? Great past title, huh? That we want to keep saying, a wrinkle. We we will go on though. Denosumab induced hypocalcemia, and this was done by so a lot of them. So I'll just say the last name. Dr. Leskowski, Goldfarb, uh, Howland, Kavix, Lugasi, and Smith. This is a case report about denosumab, which is a human IgG monoclonal antibody. It was approved in 2010 to prevent skeletal related events in postmenopausal women. Without getting too much into it, what this does So, rankle is the ligand, and when rank binds to rankle, it causes increased osteoclast activity and bone resorption. So, what does denosumab do? It binds to the rankle, so rank cannot bind, and limits osteoclast osteoclast activity and therefore bone resorption.
0: Well done. Like, I didn't think you could – that was a lot of rank in there. You like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, basically, it,
1: it makes it so your osteoclasts can't mature. Right, so this was a 66-year-old male, prostate cancer, uh, presented with fatigue, weakness, and muscle spasms, had a slight tremor, and his serum calcium was 5.2. Now, what's pretty cool is the amount of calcium he needed over the next 24 hours. He got 16 grams calcium gluconate, 2.5 grams oral calcium. He also got 8 grams of total IV magnesium because he was hypomagnesemic as well. They also noticed his 25 hydroxyl vitamin D was low and he got some ergocalciferol. Uh patient was discharged on colocalciferol, oral calcium, calcitriol, and he had close follow up as he continued having fluctuating levels of calcium.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. He went on the calcium roller coaster. That's right. right? Didn't <laughs> you say
1: something that he uh actually became hypercalcemic at yeah, one point? Yeah,
0: it's, it's am- yeah, on like day between like day 21 and day 24, he's on oral Supplementation of calcium, like ten grams a day, and then there's like that little node that says, "Presented to the emergency department, required fluids." (laughs) This poor guy. Yeah, they just
1: slipped that one in.
0: No, no, I mean this is obviously like a super complicated patient. Um, That's kind of a kind of a disaster. But you know, I mean, they they go on and talk about um, a case series with sixty patients that uh, have hypocalcemia. So I mean, that's it's certainly like known that this can do this. Well, why do you think? This person had such a, a prolonged course or such a severe course
1: well I mean they talked about one of the problems that can make the hypocalcemia worse is people with chronic kidney disease and this patient appeared to have some acute on chronic kidney issues so I think that just exacerbated the issue
0: yeah right and then he's also on cisplatin Ooh, right? so they, yeah. they do a good job of really going through that and, uh, and and you know dr. Goldfarb's on this patient on this paper definitely. Taught me a ton about uh, renal physiology and treating poisoned patients from that perspective. But yeah, that so remember that. The chronic kidney disease or the AKI and in, in acute, on, acute on chronic maybe kidney injury, then on the, the cisplatin, which is going to cause some renal tubular dysfunction, and this is all going to be much worse in the setting of hypomagnesemia. So, you know, there was a really kind of fun section on all the things that can happen if you have bad kidneys, comorbidities, and are on other things that can affect your calcium homeostasis.
1: Yeah, good point. Things that we don't normally review, but uh, have to know sometimes, you know, and it makes sense, this drug. It has a good mechanism for causing hypocalcemia. That's what it does to some patients. So just be aware of it.
0: Yeah, and 16 grams of calcium gluconate, I don't, that might deplete some ED supplies.
1: Yeah, that's a big right. boy dose.
0: Yeah, that's that's the varsity. That's the varsity nose. All right. That was very cool.
1: And finally, to end the show, let's end with the Toxicology Investigators Consortium Case Registry, the 2015 experience.
0: Let's let's do that.
1: Yeah. Now, I'm not going to go into all detail. This is generally basically a review of what's going on in Toxic this year. But I do think it's important to talk about. Now, Toxic was created by ACMT in 2010, kind of as a toxico surveillance thing. And the thing that makes this database really good and different than what you get from poison control centers is that the only patients that are put in are patients that are actually seen by a toxicologist and consults were done in person and then they're entered. So you got to think that the data you get, there's a minimum baseline there because you have a toxicologist seeing that patient. You should be getting better information, better data. At this moment, there are 50 active sites, 101 healthcare facilities, six articles were published using that data in 2015, 25 published abstracts. The rest of the information, you guys can go look in the uh, journal and look it up yourself. There is some good review stuff, but I did want to just mention it because I think as a database for resources, I think this is a great thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, this is definitely great stuff. I'll mention this uh, for Dr. Leslie Dye. This was created by the American College of Medical Toxicology. It was pointed out that we may have misspoke on a previous episode. And Leslie said that she almost fell off her bike due to our, our mispronunciation of something. So we apologize. Obviously, this is going to be better than a lot of the, if not all of the poison center data. There's still some things that I would like to know. I would like to know which centers report how many cases, because we might you know, want to make sure that we are seeing a representative cross-section of all those centers. And I also want to make sure that smaller centers that don't get as many cases are also included so as not to, uh, to skew some of the results so but other than that i think that these things are great i i do know that some cases at least i know previously some cases got reimbursed for reporting so it would be helpful to mention which ones if those are all just say it's all if there are just for the snake registry or whatever say that so then we can kind of interpret that
1: data as
0: well right
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with that, if, you know, some get paid and some don't, there is going to be a little bit of a selection bias and reporting bias based on, you know, what you get more paid for. So that's, I think that is important to say, but I do want to say to everybody who's involved, right? Keep putting in your cases there. Great resource for those of you who are not involved. Maybe talk to ACMT, see if you can get in it and start reporting cases so we can get it to grow. Get a better data set for all of us to pump out more research.
0: That's a that's a great point. That's a great point. I would like to get my center. I would like to get my center involved. So, um, I don't know the reason.
1: Well, if you want, Jeff, I have a guy.
0: You know, you know a guy. I don't I know. know if there's a like a, we were involved, but uh, yeah, we got to we got to get back in on if there was like a dress code or a height requirement. Well, we got to get back in on it.
1: Ooh, this is getting awkward. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> Anyways, good stuff. Good stuff from the toxic. Is it toxic or tox ic? that was a whirlwind of toxicologic goodness for you to sink your teeth into during your bike ride leslie or or drive or train ride or whatever while you're playing the pokemon goes i know that greg is a big fan of that um but yeah thanks for hanging with us this entire time it's been uh, a lot of fun for us to put together so if you have comments problems or suggestions hit us up on twitter hit us up on email and we will try not to call you out although there was this one dude who, um, that one of the only people that made a comment to us. Should we call him out? Well, I mean, we can mention the comments. Uh, the, yeah, the comment. What was it? It was, you guys sound like Rocky and the dude? Was that what it was? I
1: think something like that. That uh, Greg sounds like Rocky Balboa. I have to say, I was a little offended. Not Were for you? what you might think. I mean, I love Rocky. Who doesn't love Rocky? Cut
0: me, Mick. I mean, that's a great, right. that's a great comparison.
1: You're, you're un-American if you don't like Rocky. But Rocky was from Philadelphia, and my accent's clearly from New York. So I just find it insulting that we would mix those two things up.
0: You're strong island,
1: right? I'm strong island, baby.
0: Right on, man. So, yeah, well, they were right about the dude part, so at least I got yeah. that
1: going on. And <laughs> it does make me think. You ever see the Jack in Box commercial where he brings his intern to Philadelphia? No, no. Never? He says, oh, I wanted to make cheesesteaks. So I sent my intern to Philadelphia. And then a week later, the intern comes back. He's got a mullet, cut off sleeves, and he's got a roll of quarters in his pocket. And he says, hey, Jackie, I soaked up Philadelphia like a sponge.
0: Wait, that's not Long Island, too? <laughs> All right. All right, take care, and we will catch
1: you guys next time. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Woo, boy. Whee! Obviously, we're getting a little overtired here.
0: A little overtired. Too much, too much caffeine. (laughs) We have to stop. I'm stopping. All
1: right.